Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Goose and Maverick. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Wayland Yutani. The future has never been brighter. Wayland Yutani. Welcome to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is the podcast where we like to analyze break apart films and try to, I don't know, learn something about the movie making process and storytelling. And there's just so much that goes into making a movie that it's endless. Like we are doing Interstellar for the second time to celebrate our centennial. We're crossing the, uh, the 100th big, episode, man. That's insanity. It's pretty awesome. And it's hilarious because I feel like we're going to talk about entirely different things than the first time around. Yeah. Like yeah. this was episode number two originally. Uh-huh. And... Now, 98 episodes later or whatever, uh, we're going to do it again, and it's probably going to cover different stuff. Uh I assume 99% of this will be new. And then I still think we could do like another one or two episodes and still cover yet more stuff. Probably, yeah. Like, And I think this is probably true for most movies, but especially for me, this movie. But I mean, we're we're vested in it, you know, yeah. like it just means a lot to us personally, each of us. So we could, we're always going to look at it and find something new. That's so but true. it's a very deep movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's like like most great movies, it's not really about what you think it's about. So absolutely right. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, and that I th- that goes to a lot of Christopher Nolan's capabilities, I think. And I'm trying not to eat into like the actual uh-huh. meat of it because yeah. it's all preamble. Right. But. I've only seen this in movie theaters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you could probably count on two hands how many times you've seen it, right? Barely. Yeah. Like I've seen it nine times. Okay. In, in theaters. Uh, and only ever in either IMAX or uh, 70 millimeter yeah. uh, at the draft house. And I know people probably just kind of roll their eyes or laugh at me. And rightly so. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, but there is a reason. And part of it definitely goes back to what you're saying. Like I am... You know, I love this movie, but it's also like imagine a nicest bottle of wine that you ever bought. Would you, you know, like a one of our movies we've covered, pour it into a styrofoam cup and uh, drink it while dining on a Happy Meal? Probably not. You want to uh, respect that that wine or whatever. And it's I'm not. Like- and it's. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's not that you know you can't enjoy this Interstellar at home, but also know that uh, Christopher Nolan made this to be seen on the big screen, and it doesn't fully translate, especially when you start considering the IMAX version. Like the the seventy millimeter is fine on widescreen; it's amazing, and I'll watch it every time they put it up there, assuming I can get a ticket. <laughs> but it translates pretty well to TV in terms of you're not cropping anything out from those two. Whereas you go from the IMAX to any other widescreen version, you're cropping out so much. There's a lot of extra frame that's being left out. And then that being projected so huge in front of you, the immersion is completely different from any other viewing uh, style. And I just feel like at some point I will start watching it on Blu-rays. I know it's been, what, six years since this came out. Yeah. And I was getting close to that point. Like for this episode, if magic, uh, you know. It just so happened that I had my app open and saw it. And I was like, oh my God, they're showing it in 70 millimeter. And you were like, what? (laughs) 
I have a notification for that. Why didn't I get my notification? <laughs> oh my right. God. That's so true. <laughs> That's on, exactly man. how that went. That was crazy. Yeah. I think the, the bulk beams opened up, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the bulk beings. Yeah. And so whenever that happened, I was like, Oh yes, I don't have to watch it now. Cause I was going to have to sit and, you know, take some new fresh notes yeah. and I just wasn't going to be able to create that out of my memory. But now I, I didn't have to do that. That's great. Um, and I, I still didn't, didn't take very good notes. Like I scribbled down a few thoughts, right. um, but I was still wanting to just be completely present. But I think if I could see it in IMAX one more time to round it out to a clean 10 in the theater, yeah. I'll finally come down. Then and you'll come down to yeah. us, us peons. Because I was really stressing out. Like I was aching to see this movie and it's been probably three or four years since I've been able to watch it. And so you're just, Wait, you haven't seen this movie for three years. Yeah. Three, no three, maybe way. Four. Yeah. Really? It's been that long since they've shown it in theaters. We, that was when we saw it the other night, that was it. Yeah. Do you realize I've probably watched this movie <laughs> like three times as many times as you have? <laughs> That's crazy that to me because that, that literally happen. does not happen for anything. Whatever. Weird. Uh, so I was, yeah, serendipity, man. Very yeah, cool. that was, it was, that was awesome. So, um, anyway, so if you have not seen interstellar, please pause the episode. Now usually we give the spoiler alert sooner than this, but pause the, this episode and go watch it because we're going to talk about all the details. And really, this is a movie that you just don't want. Wes is going down deep. This is really a movie you do not want to have spoiled. You really want to be able to sit down and have your own take on it because everybody's going to take something different from it. So pause the episode and come back. Uh, <laughs> so what are we going to talk about? Uh, we'll talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about the cinematography, resetting the frame, and I'll obviously explain that later. Um, we'll definitely talk about audio and music i feel like you probably had a thought or two on music not at all <laughs> and of course we'll touch on writing and storytelling last time i did a huge deep dive on theme um and i have no need to return to theme there's other themes in the movie but maybe i'll do that in the future centennial mark okay. <laughs> and other such stuff and things and stuff uh so a quick synopsis uh a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival it's directed by christopher nolan written by jonathan and christopher nolan cinematography by hoyt van hoytema featuring matthew mcconaughey as coop and hathaway as brand jessica chastain as murph michael kane as dr brand David Jassy as Romilly, Timothy Chalamet as Tom, and Mackenzie Foy as Young Murph. Don't you get it yet, Tars? I brought myself here. They didn't choose me, they chose her. For what, Cooper? <laughs> to save the world. All of this is one little girl's bedroom every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm gonna find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How, Cooper? Love, Tar's love. It's just like Brand said. My connection with Murph, it is quantifiable. It's the key. What are we here to do? Find out, tell her.
detective. How do you know? Because the bulk beams are closing the Tesseract. I thought you get it yet, Tars. They're not beings. They're us. What I've been doing for Murph, they're doing for me. For all of us. Cooper, people couldn't build this. No. No, not yet. But one day, not you and me, but a people. A civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. Can we just go watch it again? I know. Can your tent be on a computer screen? Can we just spend an hour and two hours watching the movie while people watch? That would be a fun like bonus to do. Sometimes. Yeah, just reactions. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, what are your feelings uh, after that that scene? I mean, it still gets to me. Yeah. Yeah. Why? What, like, what, what? What do you think that is? I mean, if you have to put it in a nutshell, because it's, it's everything and it's everything leading yeah. up to it and all that stuff. But yeah, I, you know, from a, an intellectual point of view, which definitely is connected to my heart. Uh, if everyone doesn't know the way I see the world and, you know, directly has those strings atta- attached, I guess. But I love the simplicity of it. Like he built this really huge world um, that's incredibly grounded. None of it feels um, unrealistic or like a pop sci-fi thing. Uh, it feels incredibly based in reality. And obviously he went, he goes through great lengths to establish that and play it through. And it's, it's a big movie with these simple ideas and it's science fiction and it's built around such a simple story. Yeah. I mean, that's one aspect that I definitely wanted to touch on was, And this is, I think, more of a question for you on how to do this. But I felt like I always feel like there is um, there is nowhere else except for what's in the frame. Right. Like except for this place. And even when I'm not on Earth, I feel connected to Earth. When I'm on Earth, I feel connected to Coop and, and the crew in space. And that is that's not just because of of the story because anybody could tell these two stories, these two, you know, side by side stories, uh, separated by millions of miles, but they, it, it's also has a lot to do with the cinematography and the lighting and the way like the set design and stuff. And, and I don't really understand why I feel so connected to this, this I, space. I think it really is as simple as the emotional connection between Murph and Coop. I think they spend, and it's interesting because I didn't realize Timothy Chalamet was even in this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. Until we watched it again, I was like, "Oh my God, he is in this!" Just now, you realize that? Seriously, this like, this time, this this past. I mean, I guess I'm experience. not surprised because you do not recognize people. <laughs> that's true. But that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, wow. I was like, he's an incredible talent, but we spend almost no time at all with him. Like, yeah, everything, all the conversations, largely happen between two people. Murph and Coop or between Murph and uh, Dr. Brand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's it. And so those emotional connections, whenever you see Murph, 
you're seeing her in context of her relationship with her father and similar with with him you're thinking about everything he left behind and so they spent so much time especially you know the first what 45 minutes establishing how much alike they are and personality yeah. and yeah. Uh, stubbornness and all those you know character traits that are built into these characters it's never a matter of oh she talks with a funny accent and therefore that's murph you know it's she has this very hardcore, stubborn, uh, scientific worldview, and she doesn't appreciate not being taken seriously, and she's going to get her way. Yeah. Um, and you see that through him, too. And, and he, Matthew McConaughey, adds so much emotional weight to this movie, the dialogue doesn't really support yeah. Oh, 100%. Right? This is one of his best performances. I mean, absolutely. He's done some amazing stuff, Dallas Buyers Club and everything. But like this, uh, for whatever reason, I think it's, you know, because it, anybody who's a parent especially can relate to this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And him being a parent, probably like he was probably foaming at the mouth to be able to try to convey his love for his child through his love of acting. Like, that's got to be the best gig ever, right? To do that. I mean, and to work with a, a director like this who stops at nothing to create a world mm-hmm. that the the viewer is immersed in. I I don't know if it's if it's Spielberg who said this or what, but I think it was. Maybe it was. I can't remember. But something to the effect of the only thing in a film, the only thing that exists is what's in the frame. Like nothing else exists. And I feel like Nolan takes that to the extreme here. In that when we're on earth, the, yeah, we do feel that connection. We do feel that, that connection of Murph with, with, um, uh, Coop. But even before Coop leaves, I feel like there's nowhere else, mm-hmm. even though everything looks very familiar. It feels familiar. It's, it's, it is earth as we think we know it now, but it's in the future, um, but what they're talking about, like when you see the, the, the older folks talking about the Dust Bowl and all that stuff. Okay. So first off that really happened, right? This is ba- that was based off truth of like in the 1940s or whatever, but because this is set in the future, it was, uh, those older people are basically us now. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you, um, you hear Lithgow talking about when I was younger, uh, uh, it seemed like they made something new every day. And then he says, six billion, imagine six billion people and all, every one of them trying to have it all. That's how many people are on earth. I guess we at the making of this movie and now there's 7 billion, but so we're told that it's that the older generation at during this movie is us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, I'm saying all this because it, we're making all of these connections in our head, right? They're not being told to us outright. We're being treated like smart viewers and we're connecting all these dots, which is we are building the environment. We are building the world uh, in our head through the dialogue and uh, the little breadcrumbs that, that Nolan leaves us. And it's so immersive. It's so fantastic to feel that, that way, like we're going on our own journey. It's kind of like reading a book, right? You're, the pictures are not painted for you. You're painting the pictures as you're reading the words. It's very similar in this regard. Like he's not giving us any, all of these things. We're just painting those pictures and like, we're like, okay, we're in the future. 
okay, those older people, that's probably going to be us. So maybe this is like 40 years from now, 50 years from now. Oh man. Okay, cool. All right. And then we start getting the relation. I mean, the whole time we're getting a relationship between Murph and Coop, but for whatever reason, that makes me feel so grounded in this, you know, and, and plus this is not, this is not a, a, um, a future where technology is like running everything. This is a, a not dystopian future, but it's dilapidated. It is a dilapidated because it's the same yeah. as now. Right. I mean, you've got farmers, you know, you've got, he was driving like a Dodge, you know, dually or something like that. You know, like it's just, there was no, there were computers and the computers looked pretty, you know, like I guess in the laptop, when you would open the mm-hmm. laptop at the beginning, it looked like there was a lot going on. That's it. That's all you get. You get nothing else. Um, and I love that they don't really belabor that. They don't yeah, yeah. try to justify the world. It just is. It just is. They don't make anything happen. They just, it just is. It's just so brilliant. Cause then I'm not sitting there thinking, okay, what's it like in Europe? Right. You know, or what's it like, um, in, in New York because they're in the, you know, sometimes I think that when I watch a movie, like, you know, that's, that's set on a farm. I think, okay, mm. you know, I wonder what New York, New York is like right here or something, you know, whatever. There's some random thought about a bigger city yeah. or if I'm in a city, I might think about some like, you know, what's it like on a farm. I, you know, I'm thinking yeah. about other places in that world. This, I don't think about any other place. I am just there in the moment because my mind is having to put together these pieces. It's fantastic. And I'm just now thinking about yeah. this, you know, as we're talking, because you, you actually brought up the connection between Murph and Coop and that is what kind of like keeps you. So when Coop leaves and he goes into outer space, you know, all of a sudden the world opens, right? Mm-hmm. It's the entire globe. We can actually see the, the world, the earth from where their vantage point, And then they leave the galaxy. So now we're in the universe and I'm still not thinking about anywhere else except for where Murph is and where Coop is. That's literally it. I'm not even, when they're on the water planet, Mm. I'm not even thinking about the other two planets that they're supposed to go see. I'm thinking about that planet that they're on right then and the way that they connect it to, to Murph back on earth. Because if I don't pay attention to those two things, I miss stuff. And all you're thinking while he's there, of course, is he's losing time. He's losing. Yes. He's yes. losing Murph right now. Yes. Her life is just vanishing. Yes, exactly. I, it's, just, it's heartbreaking and it's it keeps you glued, like you said, to that moment. Yeah. And of yeah. course, all the other things that, you know, he's doing as a filmmaker between the audio and the music, like mm-hmm. all plays into that tension that you're creating that's keeping you focused. All of that kind of, you know, is working in harmony for sure. Yeah. But it's... It's incredible storytelling. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and it's efficient. It's really efficient. Like there's so many things that he doesn't show you that you might, after the fact, start wondering like, wait, what about this or that? But when the movie's playing, you're not, you don't care. You don't think about any of those things because you're so glued into the story. Like they didn't go into all these uh, big details on how the launch pad worked or uh if Coop got any training, like we cut oh, yeah. straight from the farm to the rocket launch. Gosh, no fluff. And th- that is such a great way to tell the viewer you are in for a ride yeah. because if you don't pay attention, you are going to miss something. So pay attention because there is no fluff here straight from the car to the explosion of the, of the takeoff. And we don't even see the launch at uh, like, we see the fire coming out of the, the jets and then they're in space. Yeah. We don't even see the actual progression of them flying up into space. 
And it's like he uses those moments to kind of start introducing people because there's things that you would assume he knows these people. He knows Romilly. He's familiar with, you know, they have a game plan, but it's just more efficient to let those scenes unfold, those moments unfold when it becomes uh, most efficient time wise and in terms of storytelling impact, having the conversation about. Uh, relativity and figuring out how they're going to slingshot around, you know, that the, the water planet that very well could have happened on Earth. They probably had some idea of what that thing is and where it was. But having it come up right before the moment actually happens helps establish and keep that cleaner. And all those connections are much stronger as it's happening and unfolding because you've established kind of this mini movie, this 10 minute uh, scene where we're going to go down, explore this planet and have some sacrifices along the way. Like they lose one of the doctors, uh, Wes Bentley. I didn't even put his name in the notes. (laughs) Yeah. Why not? (laughs) He didn't make it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's why. But yeah, it's just, there's a lot of that that happens throughout the film where you would assume some of these conversations take place somewhere else. Yeah. Well, also, also, if you notice, and maybe you haven't because you've only seen it nine <laughs> times, and I've seen it 25 times, um, but he starts playing with time immediately when they're in space. The first thing that happens when they get out in space is they, is they dock, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you notice, as they're, as they're coming up on the endurance to dock, they say 12 minutes out. And then the next cut, they're at the endurance. There's no time there. It's just like, boom. So there's 12 minutes gone. Okay. Uh, they do that a couple of different times while they're, while they're in there. Sure. Saturn, the trip to Saturn. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Well, the trip to Saturn is different. Obviously they can't show the whole thing, but I mean right. like, but they say, immediately cut, they say, we'll be coming up on Saturn in eight months and then boom, it's yeah. eight months later. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then like when they get to the, they get to Saturn and they're coming up on the wormhole, they say three hours to the wormhole and then mm. they're at the wormhole. It's immediate. Oh wow. So they're, they're, they're actually saying this amount of time until, and then that amount of time is gone. It's like we've lost it. And I feel that loss a little bit mm. because normally in a normal, uh, a normal movie, right. Or if a normal director would, would shoot this movie, they would take that, that time after saying out loud, 12 minutes out from the endurance cut to Murph, something would happen. And then they cut back. That's an easy way to show the passage of time without even showing the passage of time. And I think going like the, the whole travel to your travel to, to Saturn, you know, they're cutting to different things, you know, whatever, because that's just a huge swath of time. They're cutting back, back to earth and stuff, but to say three hours and then not leave them, not go back to earth, not go anywhere, but you're still on the endurance. And then the next cut now, now, uh, uh, Coop has his suit on. He's sitting in the, in the, the pilot's chair, pilot seat. And Romley says, can we stop the spinning? Cause we can see it now, but nothing changed. It's, it was literally like a cut and that's it. And I love it because he's just telling you, you're going to get messed with in this time is passing. Time is passing. You're losing time. That's really cool. You know, you don't feel like you lose time if you cut Mm -hmm. to another scene, but if you don't cut to another scene and you stay there and you just lose the time, you're like, oh shit, that's gone. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, that was one of my favorite things that I noticed. Nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Cool cinematography yeah let's do it let's do it let's dive in so obviously a lot of handheld here which is interesting because i think nolan generally 
mixes in a lot of everything. Like he'll do a lot of handheld and he'll do, uh, you know, dolly and slide shots. And whereas, you know, a fencer likes everything locked off, there's very, very little handheld. Uh, and so I love the mix because handheld does give you an opportunity to kind of emotionally establish everyone's frame of reference. Like this is how the world is. It creates a little bit more personalization in the frame. Yeah. And so even within that though he still you know pans and moves around he's not afraid of that stuff obviously um being a master storyteller my favorite uh thing that kind of jumped out at me was towards the end when they're on the ice planet and murph has sent the message that dr brand's father's died and now she's watching it and she's learning about the death of her father and then you know then murph isn't able to turn it off and she's like did you know uh-huh. um that this was all you know a lie and we have this tight scene uh these tight shots between uh brand and coop and it's very very tight like these are just two shots dirty singles and our brand is confused and coop is trying to you know ask did you know about this and she's like i have no idea what she's talking about right now and we hear off screen uh-huh. i do and then we move, we dolly, we wide, we pan over to establish a whole new frame and setup that now includes Dr. Mann as we're about to get another truth. And I love that because it is a significant moment for one at the end when we're finding out the big lie that, you know, was told. And because Dr. Mann is out of frame and we reset whenever we pan over to start a whole new setup. And so we're widening our view Literally, yes. as yeah. well as, you know, metaphorically, um, because it's ex- it's expanding our knowledge of the, the mm-hmm. story and what everything is happening. And so it's a very simple and elegant solution that requires, you know, thought and planning, but adds a level of cinematic quality, you know, to use an overused phrase, cinematic quality, as opposed to a hard cut. Like you could just as well serve the story in the scene, um, maybe not the story, but certainly serve the scene with a hard cut that transitions and opens it up to a bigger uh, scenario and you know to a degree you are serving the story that way but it may not add as much polish or expand the emotional impact of the moment by connecting the relative distance between them because now it's them two in our foreground um, to you know an extent and dr man far away and so we're kind of pulling him and then i think we punch in after we have that pin over. I, I want to say it punches in much closer to to hear his story and his side of the the thing. Um, and I get it. I know it's a simple scene and moment. But if you're a filmmaker who asks why your stuff doesn't turn out as good as a pro like Nolan, um, it's these little moments that add up to a higher quality product. Thinking through a scene, the beats, and understanding how to smoothly pull the audience in on the moments that matter. Because it does, it requires blocking and rehearsal and execution by professionals. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. Everyone has to be in on it. The timing, the moment, it's all working in harmony based on one very specific idea of there's something significant happening here that we don't want to just capture in coverage, quote unquote. That idea of coverage is you're going to get a wide, you're going to get a medium, you're going to get close ups. And then if you need an insert of a watch or whatever, then you grab those. That's coverage and it's bland. It's not emotionally compelling on average, whereas dolly moves and pans and tilts and all these things can really add a lot of emotional polish. When they're done right. When they're done right. At the right time. Yeah. And with thought. Yeah. For sure. So we'll get into the uh, audio and music now. I will say my tiny bit. And I know you'll have a very, very, very small bit. (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So for one, very simple again. 
music cues up adventure or mystery. Um, it sets up our expectation as the music shifts or changes melody or tone. And he uses that all over the place. Like yeah. whenever suddenly they're changing a flat tire and a drone flies overhead, cue the, the, the adventure music. And suddenly it's not generic adventure music. It's freaking Hans Zimmer. Yeah. But it is. It sounds like this is magical and we're on our way somewhere. And so we're seeing and feeling everything kind of happening at once. And it started, it's triggered by music. He could have easily have cut the music and still had, a, you know, a, an interesting scene, a tense scene. But the wonder that you feel in this movie is absolutely predicated on the music that's that's in there. And that works whether we're talking about the mystery, the wonder, uh, there's all these emotional things that I want to say there's there's nothing innate in us that says, oh, that theme or that that melody is is curious. That's a curious, you know, that makes me feel curiosity. I think it's probably to some extent, you know, culturally programmed uh, in pop culture or what have you. And so these are things that we've kind of learned, uh, learned behaviors. But the originality certainly uh, is is unique, you know, as, yeah. it, as it goes. But the audio I thought was really interesting, too, because he's doing some really fun stuff with the dialogue because so often he drowns out dialogue like throughout the entire movie, not every scene, obviously, but so many important scenes are drowned out because I think the, the audio, the ambient noise and like in the rocket, um, whenever he's trying to have this conversation with TARS, you can't really hear everything. So you, you do strain and it's different from other films that I've seen that use this technique of you can strain, but you can hear everything. You really can't hear everything in this movie. Yeah. Um, you, Sometimes can pick it up, sometimes you can. And I think it took my second or third viewing before I heard, you know, some of the, the quips that Tars was making on the oh, launch. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll use it to uh, so you can find your way back when I blow you out the hatch. Yeah, out the airlock. <laughs> out the airlock, yeah. Airlock, yeah. <laughs> Which is a great line. That's a 2001 reference, obviously. Yeah. And it's just, that's great. It's, it's interesting there in to some extent i guess but it's way more interesting whenever he's using it in these much more significant moments uh, specifically towards the end of the film whenever she's figured it out right that this her dad is talking to her that her dad was her ghost and this watch has all the answers and we we drown that all out like you can hear it you can make it out but it's really insignificant in context of the music and the ambient noise, the fire that's raging. Like there's so much more going on and not being able to hear it. I think we have to focus so much more on her, on her emotional state a little bit. We're trying to focus on her words, but through that, I think we're capturing, capturing more of the emotional intent of what's happening. And so I think it helps con emotionally connect to what's happening instead of relying on dialogue that may come off as super cheesy or hard to swallow. Because if you think, okay, let's play that scene like a more normal emotional impact scene where the dialogue is important, the dialogue is first and foremost, then whenever you're listening to her talk about how, yeah, he programmed the the singularity into my watch, you're going to roll your eyes yeah. and your, yeah. the buy-in is gone. Yeah, It's completely gone. Whereas if you rely on the emotionality, suddenly the technical stuff doesn't matter because, because it doesn't. In this story, the technical stuff really doesn't matter at all. Yeah. The only thing that matters is how these characters are feeling and is their love 
reestablished and is it uh, bearing any any weight? And so the fact that, you know, you see that in her eyes and we still have a little bit of an advocate for the confusion through her brother's eyes because he's like, oh, yeah, she has lost her mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we we spend very little time on him, so much more time on her mm-hmm. because we obviously are in on it. We have uh, the dramatic irony of knowing something that he doesn't know. And it's it's. I th- it's amazing. I think it's really interesting to use emotional storytelling more than actually driving the plot. <laughs> yeah. That's unique, especially in a Nolan film. This yeah. dude is plot central. He has never made another emotional movie like this. And I love all of his movies just about. And none of them, they're, they're all clocks. That's yeah. I, that's somewhat ironic that this movie comes yeah. down to a clock mm-hmm. and he kind of literally rips the clock up in this case. And he's like, I'm not going to be clockwork on this one. I'm going to be much more emotional and stilted in, in, in one sense from my normal patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, this, it it just blows me away that I can't hear the character, but yet I still understand what's happening in the story and I care and I buy in to a completely absurd premise. Yeah. Uh, It's that grounding and figuring out what matters most in the scene. Well, there, and there's other, there's those moments that you're talking about, like sometimes they're unscripted and it's kind of obvious. And so because they're unscripted, at least what, what, what they, what, what happened in the actual, in the actual take that they kept wasn't necessarily completely necessary for the promotion of the storyline anyway. So like when she, when she runs out to Tom after she figures out it's the watch and we can barely hear that because the music and the fire and the whatever, you know, whatever's going with the wind or whatever, we can barely hear what she's saying to Tom. That's okay. We already know it's no big deal, but that did not seem scripted what she came out and said. It mm. felt like it was like just something that just came out. And there, there's a couple of times when that happens, especially with uh, Jessica Chastain, like sp- specifically, I feel like he let her off the leash a little bit here. Like when she is in the, um, when she's in the house in Tom's house and they're checking out his wife and his son or whatever. And Tom comes home and she says that horrible thing, you know, you wait for your next kid to die. There's a, there's a line, I think a little before that. Oh, where, where she says, dad's not here now. It's up to me. That does not feel scripted. That felt like because she stutters a little bit. Hmm. It if it was scripted, maybe she forgot the line and she just remembered it in time to say it. But I don't buy that. I feel like he just maybe there was something written and she said something better. Hmm. Right. And and that's just how it came out. And it was so organic and real and like like noticeably different from the rest of everything you know like and it's fine that you know movies are scripted there are scripts to movies for a reason and it is important to have them um because not every actor can do what jessica chastain can do in these scenes and a lot of times they do not work but for her man they totally do and i buy them um it's not a bad thing that i notice them it's a good thing it's like oh my god there's humanity right there you know like like i can see the making of this film in that in a good way um so i thought that that was beautiful but to touch on the the music for just a second yeah um i'm not gonna you know go crazy on it but i will i'll say a couple of things and you probably already know about them so i'll just say them more for the viewers or whatever but i i'm obsessed with han zimmer um and everything that he's ever done and it is it's it's brilliant i don't think 
I don't think that there's ever been a, you know, a musicals where that, that can touch him emotionally. Can I just in, interject for one second? Because yes. there are obviously, obviously, there's a lot of amazing composers out there. You should talk about John Williams. Oh, Nobody's going to write John a Williams. theme like John Williams. Yeah. But whenever I think of Hans Zimmer, I think of like Beethoven and Mozart. I feel like he's operating just on a separate level that yeah. is apart from like I'm trying to make a badass score instead he's it feels like he's still composing in this kind of classical uh, inventive and explorative sense it feels like he's yeah. always exploring yes more than a lot of other composers totally totally like there is a um I was going to bring up John Williams because he's he's the the go-to anybody who thinks of any of a um someone who scores films they just immediately think of John Williams and maybe the astute ones will be like Danny Elfman or something, but yeah, I mean, like John Williams he's done like everything, yeah. like every, any any iconic uh, theme music you could think of, he did it. So I am not taking anything away from that brilliant man at all. I just when I hear, you know, um, uh, Indiana Jones, I don't have the same visceral feeling that I do when I hear basically any score that Hans Zimmer has done from inception to, to, you know, interstellar to whatever, uh, there, he comes at it from the point of view of, of emotion, not just story. Right. So yes, there is a story and you follow the story, but he's said a million times, he has no idea how to, how to do your movie. He has no idea. And it's not his goal. His goal is to convey a feeling in that moment. What is that feeling? Okay. I have to put that feeling into music and that that's a different approach than I think a lot of I, maybe old school, maybe old school writers would do like they, they mostly focus on the, on the, the actual story. Right. And just like moving along the plot, we're moving the movie along. Like he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't move a movie. The movie moves itself. He he lifts the movie in into the into the, the clouds, right? On a bed of of whatever is going to support it. That's that's literally it. So things like when they're on the water planet, what is the theme? What's the perp what what what's the emotion behind that? The emotion is time is precious. It is all about time. I mean, this whole movie is all about time, but specifically on that on that planet because seven years per hour, which turns out to be more than seven years per hour. But um so he starts off with so normally you would think of that as as a as a clock, and it is a clock, but it's slow. The clock is not at 60 beats per minute. So the clicking is slower than 60 beats per minute. It starts off slower. But then by the time it reaches the crescendo, when we look up at the, at the waves, then it only then when we hear the whole, yeah. is it 60 beats per minute? But leading up to it, it starts at like 40 or 42 or something. And then it slowly like moves up because there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, one, our time is slower than that time right to this the the slow speed increase in the speed is actually increasing the stress that we're feeling and the stress that they're feeling which all goes along with the story of what's happening right then they land it's kind of relaxed it's kind of chill i don't really know where they're at but they're they're looking for something but they're not looking super fast uh and then they realize okay something's wrong 
oh my God, something's really wrong. So the music starts coming up. It starts getting a little faster or whatever. And then finally, when we see what's wrong, you are at 60 beats per minute. We are with them. We are not going anywhere. And it stays here until it stops. And when it stops, what is it replaced with? It's replaced with waves, water, which is the only thing that you need to hear. It is, there's nothing else because the only thing that planet is made up is, of, of is water. So you don't need any music behind that. You let that tell the story in that moment. And, and I don't even think, I think I'm trying to remember, I don't think we hear music at all for the rest of that scene. Like even, even yeah. when, when he says another wave's coming and the, the, the stress of leaving and getting out and flying out of the, I, I, I don't think that there's any music for the rest of that scene. Brilliant to know when to have something there and when not to have something there. It's so hard to know when to hold back. Yes. I, I just, I've been so obsessed with, with how he did this and like what he did. I mean, I, you know, go to Spotify, go to Apple music and listen to the score from the beginning to the end. Uh, and it is one incredible piece that has different moments that are icon- like, I'm going to say iconic that are thematic, right? Where you hear a motif that just that like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and they're revisited. Um, I think the social network is another great example of a score that does that really, really brilliantly revisiting a motif, which is basically just like a repeating set of notes, but done in a different way. Uh, In, in this case, uh, he'll go back to certain motifs. They might be bigger, they might be smaller, but they're but they're there, and he revisits them for certain for certain things. But the the clock is reserved for specific time themes in specific moments. We don't hear it all the time, you know. We only hear it when it's needed, right? And uh, the crescendos are placed in the perfect moments. Um, the reason why he does things like he like using an organ is, is, uh, he wanted to use the specific pipe organ in London by the specific guy who plays this organ, who's played it for like 40 years. And so, you know, they tried it in other places, but then they decided, no, we want to go to this, this church. And he wanted to use an organ because he wanted the feeling of humanity, the feeling of breath. Right. And you're not going to get that from a piano. You're not going to get that from, uh, you know, violins or an orchestra, even, you know, you're not going to get that even from a horn because you hear the brass more than you hear the actual breath, but in an organ in a pipe organ, you hear you, it, all it is, is air. There's nothing else, you know, separating the, the actual notes from the air. And so, uh, so he like purposefully did that. And so that the organ is freaking everywhere because he's trying to remind you and ground you that this is all about humanity. This whole story is just about being human and about other humans and about connecting other humans uh, to other humans that you can't see even like that was one of the things that like really stood out to me this last time watching it was the idea that that uh, Dr. Mann said of, of and it's totally true of we can have so much empathy for those that are that are that we know and love, but that empathy rarely extends beyond our line of sight. And it's, it's amazing. And so what he's trying, what Hans is trying to do here is connect the humanity of people who, who are trying to save earth, who are on earth and who are trying to save earth, who are not on earth. It's just trying to connect every, everybody. And, 
yeah, I just, I don't know. I could keep going. I'm going to pause there. Um, but he just, he has this way of connecting, of connecting the actual theme of what is happening in the moment to the music. And I think that that's, that's just what separates him from all the other, all the other writers that, that do that still, they still do that, but maybe he's just better. I don't know. It, it's just, he, he also has this way of, of, uh, Cause he used to be in a band, obviously. Oh, I mean, right. yeah. And so he, and he was a keyboardist and so I always forget that. He was yeah. In. So he's a musician and so he loves melody anyway. Um, but he just has, he's a, just has a genius mind at it. I don't know. Damn cool. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> All right. But, um, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, diving a little into story writing. I thought it was really interesting. The, uh, the baseball game scene takes place where oh, yeah. that's where the the sandstorm hits the day that takes place is april 15th uh, do you, does anyone know what april 15th is in america tax day yeah it's tax <laughs> day and i think it's kind of hilarious that on tax day uh, the sandstorm kind of destroys everything you know and and i wonder what the exact connection is i'm gonna go way off script and say that i'm going to insert my own conjecture here in my own personal. <laughs> oh, here we go. But it's this idea that, you know, that it's destructive. Like they're kind of being raked over, um, in, in taxes because it's interesting that there's this question that he's, that that's posed in the scene prior where Coop's son oh, is yeah. being told, uh, effectively he's going to be a farmer. He can't go to college. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, uh, where do my tax scholars go if we don't have, you know, schools? And he's like, well, not here. And I think more story wise, it's, it's, it's kind of explaining how NASA is getting its budget to build all this crazy stuff that they're building in their basement. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's a very subtle injection of where that money is going into. Um, but I kind of like the idea that uh, it's, it's a bit of a, a judgment against uh, taxes and the way the, the government uses our, our money or takes from us. Okay. <laughs> that's my, that's way. All right. Know. Yeah. You but are. Script. I'd be, I'd be interested. I have no idea what Nolan's personal views are on all that stuff, but it's, I just think it's really funny that he picked that day and he's got this theme these questions around uh government responsibility and taxes uh that he doesn't really ever flesh out he just kind of hints at it and lets it go yeah because there's this other interesting thing and i think it does tie back a little into this conversation uh is that a hundred percent honesty isn't is it, diplomatic yeah <laughs> isn't always the best yeah with emotional beings. Yeah, that's right. And so I think there's a little bit of that in there, um, which that could turn into a whole other huge conversation. Um, we agreed 90%. Yeah, yeah we agree. <laughs> in terms of storytelling, I like the setup that you were talking about earlier, the the whole airlock hatch scene where they're they're docking. And it's really important. That's a big setup and payoff because we jump around quite a bit between uh, the NASA base and back home and then we're back in the rocket. But then we really take this extravagant amount of time to let them dock that first time. Yes. Very good. Point. Like, and it does a number of things for sure. Right. It's grounding us in this world um, and making us feel like this is all real. They're really in space and they're really going through procedures and uh, there's that effect. But I think the other more possibly important uh, effect is the payoff because we see how it in works initially and we spend a lot of time on it. Thus, 
we know at the end when it's wrong, when it's not working before Dr. Man yes. blows himself up. Yes. And so the extensive setup also grounds us and allows us that this isn't this campy, flashy sci-fi thing. And I think it probably adds a lot more punch whenever Dr. Man explodes and like dies. Uh, I think there's a lot more weight because of all the time spent grounding us and, and putting us very much into this world. Speaking of audio, how about the brilliant idea of actually being accurate and there not being any sound in space? What do you mean? Imagine I- that. I mean, come on. I've been screaming at this for years and finally, well, six years ago, uh, <laughs> Yes, finally a, a director does that correctly. I mean, it doesn't take you don't need the Kip Thorne who's the who's the the scientist who advised on this. You don't need a Kip Thorne to tell you that there's no sound in space. There's no oxygen. So obviously there's not going to be any sound. So when you hear f- like thrusters and fire and stuff, you're not going to actually hear it. Or when something explodes, you're not going to hear it. So we hear the explosion and then it cuts to outer space and it's gone. There's no sound, but you hear it inside with Dr. Man. When, when you're docking, you might feel a thud, but that thud is coming because the camera would be inside, but it's not, or maybe the camera is attached to the, to the actual, yeah, yeah, the actual outside of the, uh, the spaceship. And so the thud is coming through the spaceship, the vibration through the spaceship, but it's not going to, because it's hovering in space, right. you know, it, it just is brilliant. Yeah. It adds so much to that. I, and it's sad that I'm saying it's brilliant because yeah. there, nobody's ever done it, but like, come on, I'm so, I'm so sick of, and I, f- I find it kind of difficult. The popcorn to, movies don't do it. Yeah. Like this yeah. is a big budget, you know, to some extent a popcorn film, yeah. um, which is one of those. I don't really know what that means. I've never known what that means because I eat popcorn at every film, <laughs> but I, <laughs> You pedant. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, popcorn film. Let's watch it again. But the, that, the, even that kind of circles back to our original conversation that that's one of those things why I love this movie is because he makes it so layered and yet so accessible. None of this feels like, uh, you know, someone who doesn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about a movie. Of course, they can watch this and really get a lot of enjoyment out of it and have a good time. Um, And then, you know, people that do like to think and chew and figure stuff out, the layers, it's all there. And all of his movies have that. It's incredible. It blows me away that he's able to do that. I love that. Anyway, I love that you address the the coming back, like the the docking scene, the initial docking scene. And so it sets up the last one. They do that all over the place in this film. And if you see it more than once, you notice... You start noticing, oh, that, oh yeah, that's right. They didn't finish that. So they come back at the end and they close that loop. There are, there are like 20 loops in this movie that all get closed. It is brilliant. You see every gun go off that gets loaded. Right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, I love the little documentaries, like you were talking about uh, a little bit a while ago. Uh, like the, it, we open on those little documentaries about you know the Dust Bowl um, and the way life was, and um, and it's a little disorienting because you know you're here for a Christopher Nolan sci-fi and you're getting a Talking Head documentary. Yeah, <laughs> like what is happening? And but he loves doing that in terms of disorienting the audience. Yeah. He loves throwing you off your kilter and making you ask questions uh, because that's an engagement tool. Like now I'm a little bit more invested. I'm trying to figure out what the heck is happening here. Yeah. Whereas every time like we, you know, drone on about all the time, don't spoon feed us everything make us think, make us wonder, uh, make us ask those questions. But also with those little documentaries, 
it creates an easy path to exposition of the world we're entering um, because, you know, some films like to do like to do a, a text scroll uh, before the movie starts. You what know? films are those? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> King yeah. Lear or something. Oh, OK. All right. <laughs> and so here, you know, he has that same uh, effect that allows you to get, you know, the exposition of the, the, the world we're entering. Um, but it also is explained at the end of the film but only at the end, after you've already forgotten about them. Suddenly you're back there and you remember the full circle you've kind of gone on at this point and your understanding and it closes that loop, you know, to some extent. Uh, not that they hardcore opened it, but uh, it's there and it's just a little convenient thing that happens. Um, one thing I was debating I was going to talk about actually, but Izzy sent us a, a great email. He's like, hey, are you going to talk about this on uh, this, this week's episode? He, he often, you know, will buy a film just based on us reviewing it which is really damn cool what? Um, props it's my man money because we're saying words that's weird <laughs> that's so cool uh, and he knowing that we were going to be doing understudy he's like hey you're going to talk about this and he has a his own uh take on it that's you know pretty fun oh cool but the the, the scene that we're, we're thinking about is the the dual dueling scene like there's that intercutting between dr man trying to kill and get off the ice planet uh-huh. um, oh yeah and then uh we're intercutting that oh, with yeah. murph fighting with tom and trying to uh, get him off the farm it's and incredible. save their family and there's that there's these cross themes that are kind of uh toying with each other and christopher nolan does like to do that uh and not enough other film filmmakers do i think of intercutting two similar scenes uh to kind of add emotional weight and uh, to continue whatever thematic elements you're you're tinkering with um and in this case and this could certainly do a much deeper dive uh than i'm about to do uh injustice to but for one on the ice planet with dr man he's fighting coop to get off this you know dead planet that's not going to yield anything that is there to just kill yeah <laughs> and and man is of course is hiding the deadliness of his land on earth we're intercutting with uh, on the farm with murph fighting tom uh to leave their dying planet she's trying to finish uh she sets a fire right on the farm to try and save her brother she's trying to finish killing the planet which is interesting to keep her people from dying because of it whereas of course Dr. Mann was trying to conceal and hide. Uh, and that, of course, speaks back to another whole other, go back to episode two and listen to it, that, that whole theme of uh, the evolution of our species and where do we go from here, which is, of course, echoed at the very beginning yeah. uh, of our episode whenever we're listening to the end of the, of the, of the film, whenever he asked that question as the Tesseract is collapsing, and he says, uh, what happens now? Yeah. Um, and I feel like we're, we're asking ourselves that question, like, yeah, what does happen now? How do we advance? How do we evolve? Um, and of course, the, the heart of that is love and transparency um, and, and all those things that were wronged in the film. A little off track now, uh, but, but I think that maybe it, it is echoed a little bit in those two scenes that yeah. we're intercutting and seeing how two people are handling uh, a, the same scenario in completely wildly different ways. Yeah, but they're both fighting. They're both fighting. They're both fighting. Like, and just like Dr. Mann said, because Dr. Mann is right about everything he says. Totally. Um, he says, you're, you're going to, you know, what, what do, does science say that you're going to see before you die? Your children. You're going to fight a little harder to survive. And, and in, that, in that moment, and Jenny thought this was cheesy. My wife, she saw it with us in the theater. She thought this was cheesy. But I, I don't. I don't think anything. Well, 
maybe one scene, but it, it might be. But in that moment when he's about, he's like dying because he's breathing ammonia. We do see just a couple of shots of him with Murph before he left her. And that you could, that's just to tell us he's fighting to survive. Like he is not, like he's not going gentle. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but then also we're cutting to Murph. She's told to leave. She is leaving. And then she decides, no, I'm fighting. And she goes and sets fire and to the, to the crop and then runs back in and, and is not quitting. She's not giving up either. It, they're both the, the same you know, like you said, they're very similar. So they're doing different things, obviously, yeah. but they're both fighting for survival. You know, like she knows if she doesn't do this, if she doesn't go get back in that room, the world will end and everyone will die. He knows if he dies, everyone will die. Like humanity is wiped out. Yeah. And obviously he wants to get back to his, his kid. Yeah. So yeah, very, I mean, that scene actually, I talked to, um, to my wife about, on the way home, but how much I loved it and how I thought the editing was so brilliant in that because of those exact reasons that he, that he mentioned, but, but also just like the, the timing of them. So one thing that's, that's really difficult in editing is really getting the timing down. So like, yes, a lot happens on earth, a lot happens on, on man's planet, but where do you start the editing? You know, like, where, like, where are you, like, okay, we're on, we're on man's planet. We're on the ice planet. And then we want to start telling the story on earth at the same time. What, at what point on earth do we, do we cut to? And, and what scene, how long do we need to be on man's planet before we start cutting there? Right. And so that's a hard decision to make to time. Right. But then also how long do we stay on each planet? Right. Do we have multiple scenes on man's planet and then have multiple scenes on earth do we have one scene do we have go one and one one and two like it, and it feels like they employ some really classical cliffhanger uh methods because they keep ramping up the stakes yes and then cutting away and then cutting away like what she she like yeah and they cut away like she starts the the flare and then or maybe i don't know, I can't remember if she starts the flare and they cut or she starts the flare lights the fire and then they cut but whatever yeah the action happened and then they cut away you're what like whoa, whoa, whoa why is she doing that and it gives us the opportunity to advance the story off screen because yes. now we don't have to watch her drive all the way up to the house or whatever like that can happen off screen we don't need to see that and so it gives us an opportunity to jump forward in each storyline to the most important moments uh-huh. As long as you know where you want the, that section to go. Like, yeah, right now we need to establish that uh, he's Dr. Man has has the upper hand. And so as you leave, you know, he's you're watching him scramble, uh, yeah. coop scramble to find, you know, anything. Yeah, the <laughs> calm. Yeah, the yeah. calm. Yeah. And so they're just picking those really great moments of we're going to tell this section of the story, freak you out. <laughs> yeah. And then cut away. But the, and they take the entire rest of the movie almost. Well, not the rest of the movie, but until he gets into the test rack. Like. She, we don't go back to that until after he solved it. Yes. Yes. Like, well, I mean, we don't see her like leave the farm. Uh, Now we might see her walking around. No, we don't see her leave the farm until the test track closes. But like the whole thing, like, so they're cutting to earth basically from when they get onto man's planet, they start cutting to earth Yeah. from the, from man's planet all the way through the end of the Tesseract is the whole earth scene. Yeah. So we go through three scenes 
which is man's planet, the the black hole, like orbiting the black hole, slingshotting, and then the Tesseract. Yeah. And uh, a lot happens. I mean, the docking sequence. Yes. Uh, the like do- you yeah. said, the, uh, the whole black hole event horizon. Yes. Um, All of that happens while just what happens on Earth is is... They're inspecting the kids, the, uh, Tom's family, Tom and his family, they get kicked out. She turns around and lights the fire, goes back in, looks in the room and finds the watch and realizes that's what happens. But that is through like, I want to say tw- 25 minutes of the movie. At least. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's so, it's also great because that's ha- him playing with time, right? Yeah. Right. You know, like it's, it's for her, it's still immediate, right? It, it's just so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, I just want to nail that down because it's a really hard thing to do. Not only, you know, from a director point of view, from an editor point of view, it's hard to, it's hard to do, you yeah. know, to do right. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got. Oh, geez. And I literally yeah. like, I made maybe six or seven notes on my little scrap of paper yeah. that they give you. So I can imagine, you know, sitting down and actually trying to dial in. There's, there's so many. One thing, and I, I know that I brought this up on the first, on the episode two. Did you go back and listen to it? No. Okay. No, I just know that I did because yeah. I've loved, like, from the moment I saw this movie, I've loved this knowingness. And it just makes me love the movie, make me love Hans Zimmer even more. Before they made the movie, you know this, before they made this movie, before um, Nolan made it, like he had the script and he knew that he wanted Hans to do the score. He's worked with Hans before, obviously on Batman and stuff like that. But he goes to Hans and he says, I have a movie and I'm not going to tell you the genre. and I'm not going to tell you the story. I'm going to give you one page of script and it's a dialogue between a father and a son. And I want you to write me one piece of music based off of this. This is why Hans Zimmer, well, this is why Nolan and Hans Zimmer together are the, the greatest duo ever in, in filmmaking history. And why, one, why Nolan is brilliant because he'll do something like this. But two, why Zimmer is brilliant because he can make something out of nothing. So the script was a father and a son, just the dialogue between a father and a son. And he took it and he wrote the theme, the main theme that you hear in the music in the movie, he wrote that from one page of dialogue, knowing nothing about the genre, having no idea that it was a space movie. Wow. No idea yeah. about that. It was a daughter because he has a son. And so that's why that's the brilliance of Nolan because Zimmer has a son. And so instead of it being a dialogue between a father and a daughter, cause he doesn't have a daughter, he made it a father and a son so that he could identify more. That is just that's so cool. Unbelievably like, like forward thinking and selfless. If you think about it, like you spend years on, cause he spent years on this script. You spent him and his brother, you spend years on a script. And then you want to like, I, all I want to do is scream from rooftops, what this is to tell everybody what this is. Like, this is awesome. You know, whatever, but he keeps it to the close to the chest and he changes shit for other people to also be creative with him in it so that they can feel more immersed in it because he, he knows, I think it just feels like he, he's a selfless filmmaker. It feels like, it feels like he knows that once he makes this and it's done and it's out there, it's not his anymore. You know, it's yeah. ours. Yeah. We can sit here and we can talk for an hour and a half about how much we love this film because it's our film now. 
you know, and he's okay with that because he just moves on and he makes tenant, you know, <laughs> which I don't even know what to say about yeah. that. Uh, I can't wait for that, but you know, or he'll make the next thing and it doesn't feel like he is destroyed by being done with the project. He's just, okay, that was great. Now what's next? Very much like Coop, you know, mm. very much like Murph, just the, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not fine with where we're at. I want to know where we're going kind of thing, which is brilliant. So anyway, that was just a wonderful story that I, I loved and I know I, I've known it for a long time and I know I told it in the first episode that we did, but anyway, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely my favorite movie. You know, I, I, I loved, you know, I, I love plenty of movies and, um, uh, if you ask me for a desert Island movie, I'll, uh, it would be hard to decide, but I just have to say that this movie gets me every single time. Um, and the cheesy moments are like, I did find brands, uh, monologue cheesy. Really? I did. I did. I, it's look. I love, so I love what she says. Right. So I love the delivery too. I love how underplayed so much of the emotional moments are like, these are just people having a conversation. I love that she just kind of flatlines and doesn't try to sell it. He has a right to know. That has nothing to do with it. What does? She's in love with Wolf Edmonds. Is that true? Yes. And that makes me want to follow my heart. But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. Like, that really does work for me. Um, like, I just, I can feel her definitely holding back. Being a scientist and trying to talk about love uh, is probably very emotionally conflicting uh, for that character. And there's other conversations that, you know, are simple. And I love kind of these simple takes on uh, sometimes complex and sometimes uh, emotional conversations. And yeah, it plays so well for me. I don't know. I love the Yeah. I mean, look, the I, I'm fine with the writing. I'm even fine with not seeing her and listening to it. It's some of the facial features that she makes mm -hmm. when she, while she's giving the lines, just kind of like, huh. like, well, like when she'll, she'll do the, it's per perceivable, powerful. Like she, she does the squint mm. thing. I, just, I, I don't like it. This, the squint thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's just a, that's, that's mm. a moment. Uh, but there are no other moments for me. That's really, that's really it. That's the only time I get taken out, but I don't even get taken out because I do agree with it. Mm. 
very much. I mean, it is a cornerstone of the movie. It's yeah. like... Because that's what he's referencing in the Tesseract. He's like, Brand was yes, right. Yes. That's, that was his key to, to solving the puzzle. 100%. And it's the whole purpose of the whole movie, yeah. right? It, that's, that is the movie, that yeah. scene right there, which is another reason why it just, like, it kind of weighs on me a little bit because it, mm. I don't, I'm not like fully yeah. in it just because it, I, I, it's, it's I've so seen it vital. almost 30 times and right. every single time I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to close my eyes and listen. Cause I totally agree with this, but I just don't like her delivery. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause yeah, it is a vital scene. It, it, it's the complete key in everything that this movie is discussing in terms of uh, humanity and we're, you know, where do we go and uh, space time and gravity yeah. and love. Um, and it would probably bother the hell out of me uh, yeah. if that scene was a problem for me. Like I yeah. get it. No, that makes sense, man. And then one other thing I'll say that I just want to, like, okay, there's two things. One, I just want to reiterate how, I just want to reiterate how brilliant the loop closing is in this film. It is, cannot be understated how difficult it is to have as many setups and as many follow throughs and deliveries as are in this film. Most movies will have maybe, maybe <laughs> three or four, maybe. And sometimes they don't even close them, right? And it's really annoying. But this one has 20 or 30. They're all these little bitty things, but they are, they all add up to the, the, the most immersive feeling that you'll have in any film, really, because something will happen at the very beginning in the first five minutes, and then you'll feel it again an hour and a half later because something happened that referenced that. Something will happen 15 minutes in, and you'll feel it again in you know, 20 minutes later because something will reference that. It just through, permeates everywhere throughout the entire film. And I, I notice something, I notice a new one every time I watch it. Every single time I'm like, oh my God, that she said that, but he said this thing over there. It's like, oh, it's brilliant. When, when, um, Jesse dies, mm-hmm. I didn't know that his kid died. And the, the first couple of times I saw the movie, whenever he's given the updates, he's given the updates, you know, he introduces his son. This is Jesse. You know, mm. you know, sorry, I haven't talked in a while, dad, what with Jesse and all yeah. that's it. You don't hear you, you don't get served anything, but if you don't pay attention, you miss out. Right. Yeah. Anyway, there's a million things. Um, so I'll say that. And then the other amazing thing, the last amazing thing I'll say that I just love so much is that there are no aliens right in this yeah. movie. It's just us. We, the only aliens are us. We are aliens to ourselves in, in the future. We are the beings or there are no beings. It's us. And I love that but they call them bulk beings. Bulk beings, That's right? That's so cool. <laughs> but that it's, it's just us, but we are limited. It's not that we are unlimited. We're still limited because we cannot find a place in space and time because we are unbound by anything. So in a way, in a way we need to, we're stronger as we are now than we are in the future in a way, mm, a very small sure. way in that they needed Coop to find this moment in time because they couldn't find the moment in time. And he says that Coop says that like they're not, they're unbound. So, so they can't find a, a place in time because there's nothing that bind binds them. Like they're just everywhere all the time. It's like, gods we're gods at the at this point but 
even even God in this realm needs a limitation so that we can grab onto something. You know, it's the it's the whole I think um, Apple theory, right? Where I don't know if you heard about this, but like one of the reasons why Apple is so ingrained in us as human beings, like Apple, Apple, the company, oh, okay, Apple products, oh, right? Like an iPhone is because you can't, one of the reasons why the iPhone is so, so immersive and like so popular, um, and will always be more popular than Android is because it's limited. There's right. limits to it. You cannot put icons just anywhere, you know, whatever they have to, you know, be in a certain place. You have to do this in a certain way or whatever, but that's important because if you have unlimited ability, then you don't even know where to start. There's too much. It's an overload. And so they needed coop to do that. And I just love that. It's they is us and it's just brilliant. And I don't even think about the paradox, right? Cause yeah. it's an absolute paradox. I mean, <laughs> how the hell does that happen? But the point is that for them, Time is all the time. Yeah. Time is not future and the past and the present are all right now and always have been and always will be. That's the definition of God. That, that is God yeah. always was and always will be. That is, that's it. So we become, mm-hmm. we become that. Um, I just, yeah, it is so wonderful. I could just talk about this stuff all day <laughs> long. Um, and the fact that it's all in one movie is so compartmentalizingly mm. awesome. Yes. That I, and I can hold it in the palm of my hand. Really, the scope of this film is mm. larger than this, this house. And yet I can hold it in my hand at the same time. With just the one, the, 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 the monologue that Brand says. Yeah. It's about love, man. Love connects us. It's the only thing that can transcend space and time. And it's so true. And every time she, anybody says any kind of like important line, I'm like, yes. <laughs> when man says his lines, I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and Bran says, you're right. And then when Coop would say something like, like, oh, we used to look up at our, and wonder about our place in, in the stars. And now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Yes. <laughs> Lithgow would say six million people and all of them trying to have it all. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Just everything. It's so good. I'm sorry. I go on awesome. soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is what happens when I don't have notes. I just <laughs> talk about random stuff. Anyway. That's um, it. Nice. Yeah. So I guess see y'all you know in a hundred more episodes and we'll yeah. we'll come back with more hopefully next um, time in a, a episode 200 i'm gonna actually take notes same <laughs> like real notes. yeah i say that now um never gonna do it what are you gonna recommend this week okay so uh there is a there's there's a movie that this was this movie wasn't based on or it's or whatever but it was inspired by it's a french movie called la la gite L-A-J-E-T-E-E. I put it on there already. And I would encourage anybody to go watch it. It's a sh- it's short film. It's, it's an older um, film. It's like 30 minutes long. It inspired Nolan because it's all voiceover and it's told to just photographs. But the photographs tell the story of the, vo- of the voiceover. That's They're awesome. all different photographs of different things having nothing to do, like the one at 10 minutes has nothing to do with the one at two minutes, but they're all put together in a way that tells the story. And it's about 30 minutes long. I'll embed it in the show notes. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliant, but it's, it's totally non sequitur, like a little bit non sequitur, but it it is, it like helped inspire the film for Nolan. So 
That's amazing. Recommend that. That's really cool. It's a, it's a little bit of a difficult watch, but it's only 30 minutes. So I can, I can hang out for 30. Yeah. Um, nice. I'm going to recommend, I don't know if anyone has seen the old John Cusack movie, High Fidelity, but mm-hmm. they've done a remake a TV show instead of a guy who owns a record store it's a woman who owns a record store um, and she's kind of revisiting all her past love lives um, and trying to figure out how she got to where she is and it's zoe kravitz uh, in the star nice. role nice and it's absolutely fantastic the music in there is fantastic uh, you can stream it on hulu um, and of course i'll embed a, a trailer of the show but absolutely check it out i think it, especially you know you get one or two episodes in you're just like man this is hidden. This is sweet. Good stuff. Yeah. So a uh, short spotlight this week is actually called Palawan Pre-Wedding. It's a it's a wedding video by John Carl Tejada, which is not something I would normally watch, first of all, or even uh, recommend because wedding videos are, sorry, y'all, but it's, they're a dime a dozen. Like, yeah. No, uh, they're not good. They're not good. And, and to the extent that they're good, it's reliant on, you know, music and the emotional investment that you have of who you're watching. Wedding videos are made for two people. That's and it. they're the two people that are getting married. Nobody else cares about them. Yet this was really well made wedding video. I'm going to watch this immediately when we're done with this podcast. Now. It's really surprising. Like it's beautiful. Um, and it's a little quirky and you know, you could definitely get their sense of personalities, but I was just like, wow, I, I'm really enjoying a wedding video. I don't okay. know what's going on here. Very cool. Um, so well done, John Carl Tejada. And want to give a shout out to Junie. She sent us yes. a really fantastic email, uh, thanking us for covering Mindhunter, uh, last week. And Great. You have an email response coming to you, Junie. Uh, if I stop being lazy once again, <laughs> every time you email, apparently is when I get lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but really, thank you so much for, for uh, that note. And of course, Izzy, what's so he sent that really great email and maybe he'll comment on and put his thoughts in in here. Um, Please do. But he also, uh, he's, he's starting a challenge. He said that he's going to start working with his wife on, uh, like some fitness stuff. And so I'm excited oh, to, dude, that's awesome. to hear how that goes. And you know, if, if you need anything, just ask Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> Everything I know is, is on, is in the blog. You don't want to ask me. I'll tell you that's to go true. run 10 miles. Yep, you don't want to do that as a warm up. It's bad. To the 30 miles you're going to run. It's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> but props, man. I'm, I'm excited to hear about your that's, journey. That's dope. Um, and, and of course, stay tuned next week. We're going to be covering 1917. Booyah. Can't wait. Really excited about that. Don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes if you have not already, or whatever uh, podcasting device, app, software that mm-hmm. you use. Uh, leave us a note if you want us to talk about something or cover a movie um, or a short television show. <laughs> <laughs> Shorter one? Like a single season? <laughs> Uh, I'm never going to stop giving you a hard time, Junie. Yeah. Um, And if you want to comment on this episode specifically, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash interstellar2. This was the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Please, Nolan, do not make an interstellar 2. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, So we'll leave you with a quote of the day. Thank you from Christopher Nolan. And this was fantastic. Breaking rules isn't interesting. It's making up new ones that keeps things exciting. What? Yeah. One day I keep thinking that one day I'm going to have, I'm going to make up some kind of quote that is going to be awesome. And then I read something like this and I'm like, God, 
You know, I have nothing I'm new ne- to say. I got here. nothing new to say. Uh, it's it's really really brilliant. God. Although I I do think there's something to knowing the rules so that you can break them for sure. You know, but for at sure. the same time. You know, you can know them and then just make them new ones. Because ultimately, that's what makes most of his movies interesting: is that the fact that he is creating new rules. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, not every single one of them, but if you think about this or Inception, uh, and probably some other ones, uh, Memento, like he is creating new rules. Tenant looks like it's creating new rules. Yeah. And so, telling us, and that's we're engaged because he's inventing something in a whole new world that you know we haven't really engaged with before, and so it makes it exciting and thrilling. And I can't do it the way he does it. Yeah. I also want to give props to Jonathan Nolan too. Sure. I mean, an amazing writer just cause he's not directing doesn't mean he's not amazing at what he does. And I'll bet he, I'll bet he could direct, you know, really well. I mean, he's got a, obviously has really great storytelling vision. Um, but Cameron Crowe didn't start as a director. He was a writer. Yeah. And yeah, totally for say anything, I was watching some BTS stuff and apparently, uh, the, the director dropped out and they were just like, Hey, do you want to direct this? He's <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and they shoot a scene. He's like, okay, great, everybody. And the DP kind of leans over to him. He's like, do you want to get coverage? What's coverage? <laughs> oh, my God. That makes me feel great. Right. I get, yeah, yeah, that makes me feel great. <laughs> so, like, you have the team around yeah. you, and he's clearly got access. Yeah, yeah John and Nolan would yeah. crush it. And I can't wait for season three of Westworld. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Which it looks is, so good. Yeah. When is that coming out? That's a really good question. I think there's a cycle going on right now. Yeah, it's got to be within the next couple months. Oh, I can't wait. Anyway, that was a wonderful, wonderful quote. So thank you guys again for joining us. We're going to end it right there. Hour and 24 minutes in, 20 minutes in. Uh, but it was fun. I'm st- I can't believe we've done 100 episodes, man. I can't either. I'm pounds. Absolutely. Sweet. Uh, so, by the way, thank you to all our Patreons and everything. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. And you help us do what we do. So thank you very much. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Bye.